welcome to this week's Property Matters on Dublin South FM, the show that brings global trends to an Irish audience. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your hosts for today are myself, Carol Tallon. Brian Fox is not with us today. Uh, due to COVID-19 restrictions, we're recording remotely, so apologies for any poor sound quality. Um, I'm now joined remotely by William Power and Brian Bulger of C&W O'Brien Architects. William and Brian, you're very welcome. Thanks, Carol. Very nice to be here. Okay, so look, we'll start, uh, William, we might start with you in terms of looking at the planning. You know, what a difference a a week makes. Um, Really, a a lot has happened in the last week. So you might tell us from a planning point of view, because it seems like we've gotten a few different planning updates and briefings from the department and from the Office of Planning Regulator. So you might just run through where things are at the moment. Um, So I suppose last week, uh, the Minister, uh, Owen Murphy, um, put a pause or enacted a pause that was part of the emergency uh, legislation that went through the doll the previous week. Um, and what that has done is push out, I suppose, anything that's in uh, public consultation at the moment. So anything, I suppose, for the first five weeks of all planning applications, the public have um, an ability to be able to give voice their opinion um, and anything that's in that period at the moment has basically been put, uh, put on a pause. Um, and okay. that's that's currently, I think, for three weeks, if I remember correctly. Um, and it'll be obviously be reviewed on the basis of what's going on in, in out in the wider community. OK, now, look, obviously, um, public consultation in the context of planning is something that I've been a very strong advocate for over the last number of years. Um, so I, I'm asking this question kind of without agenda, but are there elements of the planning that can proceed um, uh, at the moment? Like what elements can proceed uh, irrespective of this pause or is everything on hold? Um, no. Um, so an- anything that's gone through and is out the far side of the public consultation. So anything that's kind of in the system longer than five weeks, um, the, the council and board Panola in relation to SHD applications have the ability to be able to make their decision. Um, now, obviously, they're under the same pressures as all the rest of us as well. So there, there is some um, relaxation, I suppose, in terms of um, what's happening and what we're seeing ha- happening with, with, with active planning applications. OK, and we did see last week that on board Panola had actually quite a busy week. You know, um, by the middle of the week, I think they'd published decisions on uh, about 800 or 850 homes um, across mainly Dublin. So th- they are still making decisions. Uh, so they, do we know how long that's likely to continue for? They, they, they are. And um, from what we understand as well, the, the, there's kind of a, a priority put on making the the, the f- decision on the full applications. Um, we, we, we are, I suppose, ourselves experiencing delays in terms of getting uh, opinions. Um uh, in regards to the, the first stage of SHDs from the board. Um, mm-hmm. But look, I, I think um, the, the thing here is to uh, to kind of just push on and hope, hopefully decisions will be made. Um, it seems to be the case that um, everyone's getting set up working from home. So there's always going to be delays around that. But um, I, yeah. I think ho- hopefully there won't be too much of a slowdown. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and But look, it's positive to see some applications coming forward, you know, even if there is um, 
even if there is a period there where it needs to be paused. But uh, Brian, what kind of advice are you giving to clients coming to you now? Um, you know, like what kind of guidance can you give them given the uncertainty? Well, I suppose we're we're treating it like William says. It's it's a it's a three week kind of pause or an extension, and you you could liken that to when you lodge an application just before the Christmas period. The the two weeks over Christmas are excluded from the process. So we're kind of saying to to our clients, look, it's 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 that, and at the moment it's no more than that. There is an opportunity for the government to extend that a further three weeks, and I and I suppose. Um, you know, objectively looking at, at the way things have gone, um, that might be something that will have to be considered. Um, but I suppose it just allows due process to continue um, and, and in a fairness uh, to put the extra 23 days onto, onto the public um, uh, public period. So we're, we're, we're advising clients just to, to keep going forward with it um, because once, you know, you can still lodge an application, uh, you can still apply for a pre-planning application. And I suppose like all of these things, once you're in the system, you know, it can be and will be dealt with. Um, the timing of it might be slightly uncertain, but it's it's not likely to um, I suppose to to upset um, too dramatically. You know, I think I think it's it's more important that you proceed uh, and get into the system, and that's what we've been advising our clients to do. That just continue as as as, as best we can. Okay, but in terms of capacity to do, because then what we're seeing is a likely backlog um, of submitted cases. So um, how how is how are they likely to be dealt with? Well, I suppose that's the, that's the challenge, isn't it? I, I suppose no more than the councils and everybody else trying to work remotely or trying to review these things. It kind of it, it creates a bigger picture as to maybe the the format in which we we submit our documents um, could be maybe a little bit more um, streamlined. Um, I mean, you'll be aware, Carol, like an SHD application can be uh, quite a voluminous um, amount of paper, and and yet at the same time, the the, the documents themselves are published. Uh, on a website, so so everything that goes in by paper is is up uh, up on a portal, and um, you know I think it, it, it will certainly raise the questions as to how how do we go forward. This is, is a perfect example of of maybe um, you know the timing for for starting to review uh, the applications. I know that certain councils will allow applications to be lodged online, but they're usually smaller domestic um, applications and and not commercial. Yeah. Um, so. You know, I, I, I think I'd still say getting the applications in, um, you know, is probably the, the, the important bit. You know, it, it, it's like if you had an appeal and the board were under pressure, they'll write to you and, and say that, um, you know, they need to extend the timeline. It's the same with fire safety certificate applications. And I agree with you, there, you know, the, the, there is more than likely going to be a, a backlog or at least a time lag uh, on decisions being made. Um, but but it'll extend across all um, all applications. Um, there's there's not way any way of circumventing that uh, as far as I'm aware at the moment. Um, yeah. So be- best to be in the system than not in the system at all, and then trying to ponder, you know, when, when would that backlog rush through? You know. Yeah, I think you brought up a really uh, really important point um, about digital submissions, and I'd love to hear both your opinions on this. But certainly. Um, you know, we have been involved in pushing for digital submissions um, for planning uh, over the past about uh, two to three years. And, you know, it did look over the last year or 18 months like there was progress being made. And certainly with the establishment of the Office of the Planning Regulator, who was taking um, a very pro-digital submission approach, it did feel like change was was getting closer. Um, and yet that that didn't happen. 
So there's an argument to be made now while the process is somewhat disrupted. Is this the time to be looking uh, at, you know, sh should that, should uh, digital submissions be part of the solution to dealing with backlogs? Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. And I think... Um, no more than ourselves, like we've 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 had to put the entire office uh, into remote working practice, and at the same time being able to access everything um, that you would normally get access through on a daily basis. That it that that it allows you to do that uh, to to get back into your own um, your own servers and 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 people to collaborate together. If if the planning system was we just say modelled as it is on, on the UK system, which is that all planning applications are made uh, digitally, submitted digitally, paid for digitally. Um, it's, a, it's a one portal. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I suppose the, the basis is already there. The building control system, uh, which was introduced back in 2014 um, uh, by Minister Phil Hogan at the time uh, for building control, uh, submissions that that's an entire portal system so it's it's an if you take it that the government has already got a system a similar system in pro in, uh, sorry in in place and working um that i you know it could it could be applied to the planning process and as i said before um there are smaller applications through certain councils that are done um with a digital uh, submission and and that would also facilitate the um the council members themselves, like in the planning office and and, and the wider uh, council departments, to be able to look at, uh, you know, the the documents that are online. If it if it was also submitted digitally, so it's absolutely the the right time to be um, to be considering it now. Yeah, and okay. Well, uh, William, I'll bring you in here. Look, if the consensus in the industry is that we need to we need to progress this, and the consensus appears to be coming from the state that we need to progress this. Where where is the you know, where is the mismatch? You know, where is this falling down? Um, I'm, I'm not sure, but it's, um, I suppose there's probably, everyone's busy. So like every time you um, try change something, there's always a resistance to doing it. Um, but I, I think that the, the advantage BCAR had, I suppose, was that it was a whole new system. So it, it, they were able to set that up from, from the get-go. If, if you look at... Um, Look at what happens. Like the, the the consultants compile a massive PDFs and documents and certs, which are then uploaded to the system, and and from the system they they go out to whichever local authority is looking at it. So like it's it's already I suppose the structure is already there. It's just about building on that. And then I suppose yeah. if, if we look like I suppose Brian mentioned the the UK model. Like if we look further afield, I can look look as, as far afield as Singapore, like where they're actually making planning decisions based on models. Um, for, for for a long time, we've been we, we've been pushing, and I suppose we, Ireland's pretty forward thinking in terms of using BIM models and stuff like that. It'd be it'd be great to get to a a, a a place where we can actually submit these things and they become part of the decision making process. Okay, and but I think in Singapore they're actually also. Uh, using artificial intelligence to to uh, facilitate decisions as well. Yeah. Whereas when that was approached uh, with Irish planners, you know, people balked at the idea that uh, we could possibly um, we could possibly allow artificial intelligence to come up and work within um, a master plan or to work within you know where there are guidelines in place to actually allow AI that we know objectively would probably do um, would probably do the right job. But yet, they 
culture hasn't changed. You know, the the appetite for that just wasn't there in Ireland. Yeah. Well, I suppose is it, that likely it, to change? If, if you look at um, what happens in the process at the moment, so like part of every SHD, there's a, a housing quality assessment document that goes in. So in in a big in a big scheme of a thousand plus units, you're looking at what is an Excel that that has thousands of fields in there that someone needs to check to go, is this bedroom meeting minimum areas? Is this apartment? Like, I suppose the ability for for AI to come in there and to do it, so like it obviously would need a structured document or a, a template to fill in. But if people are filling in that, then that can be run through a computer and save probably, probably it has to be 100, 100 man hours more of time that can actually be spent analyzing the application in terms of the, the the planning side of it yeah but but then okay how far are we away from having the capacity to do that because i think it's interesting brian that you um referenced that uh that there that um say in terms of the building control system that that was in place whereas actually one of the one of the uh points of objection we've gotten from planning departments uh, nationwide is that there isn't one cohesive system so in fact you know we've actually had uh, people say in from um, looking at things from a conservation point of view, saying that they couldn't access within, say, uh, one local authority. They couldn't physically find everything um, got to do with one planning application because they're actually even people within the same local authorities in different departments are working off different systems. And this was seen as one of the, the potential impediments to to, dig- to accepting digital submissions. Um, so, like... Uh, how far away realistically are we from being able to do this? I don't think, I actually don't think we're that far away. I, I think it's it's like, as you say, it's a concerted effort to say we need to shift across to that system. You know, I, and I know at the very beginning of the of the BCAR system, there were a lot of teething problems. Um, you know, there I wouldn't say it was a rush, but it, it was certainly, there were a lot of stakeholders trying to, to, um, to ensure that, you know, what went into the system and how it was put into the system actually made sense rather than being just uh, a big depository of, of documents that had no, um, I suppose, no format as to how to recover or get back the information. And that was from, the, I suppose, the councils or the building control side. They had to ensure that the information that was going in was at least track, you know, traceable and, and, and could be tracked. Um, I, I think I'd go back to the, the 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 point about you know a typical SHD application, whereby you know if you think you have you have to pre- you know prepare a website which goes live dur- for the duration of the SHD application, and 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 that is the very simplest version of a portal to all the documents that are available. Mm-hmm. Now, I can't see I can't see how. Uh, how much of a leap it would be to have a centralized government planning portal and and to mimic the same thing um and and it could be you know av- available for all the departments and and clearly this this you know this period that we're in as you say if if the documents are sitting in a box you know in in on a desk or on a floor in in um, in the local council then obviously it's very difficult for other departments to to get access to them so so digital information is is really the 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 only way forward uh, as i see it um, and yeah. I can't imagine that we're that far out from having that as an option. Um, but it probably mm-hmm. takes something like this to focus the mind and say, you know, this this would facilitate, you know, um, a huge amount of 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 man hours. If, if yeah. you look at, yeah. um, sorry, if 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 you look at 
the SHD process. Like when when that came in first, the, the board were talking about upgrading their system. So c- currently there are applications that have been decided that there is no way to get access to the historic record of that. So once because because the websites are in the control of the applicants, so once 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 it's the application is dealt with, they tend to come down. Um, and not all of the councils are replicating the SHD applications on their system. So some of them, like Kildare County Council, South Dublin, are. So like you can go on there and find a replica of all of the documents that, that have been on the application. But they're not all doing it, which which to me is an issue when, when it comes to looking at the historical record. Yeah, it would also seem like a logical first step um, towards a, a more united uh, or a more unified system. But look, I, I think that we're only really at the start of this conversation, um, but it does feel like the right opportunity for these steps to be taken. So we hope that that's obviously something that, that will happen. So look, we leave it there for now, um, but hopefully this is a bit, uh, an issue that we will be able to revisit and there will be some positive move around this. So our thanks again to William Power and Brian Bulger, both of CNW O'Brien Architects. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining. And we'll take a quick break now. Stay tuned. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9. This is Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. I'm joined on air by Tom Parlin, Director General of the Construction Industry Federation. Tom, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Carol. Okay, so Tom, tell me, how are how are your members finding things at the moment? Well, I suppose, Carol, since the Taoiseach's announcement uh, last Friday week, uh, that evening, and then the uh, government uh, uh, provided their guidance the next day, which basically said... Uh, very clearly that construction companies, uh, unless you were working on specific HSE projects to do with COVID-19, or unless you were part of the uh, essential services to the global supply chain, and obviously that is a big part of the general industry here, and uh, this is where, um, uh, you know, medicine, pharma, security, cyber, cloud, data centre projects, uh, and mainly by the big foreign direct investment here, if you're involved in those projects, uh, you were uh, clear to continue working, provided, of course, you stayed within the very strict guidelines. So I'd say maybe at the minute about 90% of the industry is closed, workers are at home, and uh, the other 10% are working away at those essential services. And some of the projects that are being done uh, under massive pressure for the HSE now, I know that companies are working practically 24-7 uh, to create new hospital and new beds and so on. Okay. Is it fair to say there was some confusion over what was classified as essential for the first few days? Well, I think the um, the, the, the the guidance left it big uh, enough and it does say that the client uh, has to self-declare. So if you're a big multinational and you feel that you're part of the global supply chain that's uh, responding to COVID-19, you know, you declare that I'm an essential service and then people have to work. There was some issue, obviously the whole issue of contractual entitlements is a very big issue for um, construction firms. And uh, in some cases, until uh, uh, contractors uh, got a direction, uh, that they were uh, to cease working and that the actual site was non-essential. Uh, you know, there was a little bit of confusion there. Uh, but obviously there will be a lot of um, uh, 
uh, disputes to be resolved. We're still seeking clarity from the Office of Government Procurement and from the government with regard to um, uh, public sector projects. And we would hope that fairness uh, will involved and that won't take advantage of situations. Yeah, absolutely. I think the contracts are going to be a huge thing. So do we need for, um, on public contracts, do we need for the state to take a lead in this to show um, the private sector really how how um, such contract disputes uh, need to be dealt with? Well, I think the opposite is nearly the case. A lot of the private sectors have uh, 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 announced their intentions uh, to contractors uh, and it is important that the state would take uh, a lead. Um, we're still awaiting a note from the OGP. It has to be signed off by the Department of Public Expenditure. Uh, but everybody, I suppose, has to be very careful that they don't leave themselves exposed to uh, to, to massive claims. Uh, but, you know, the industry has been badly hit. I think there's no question about it. Uh, it is going to cause immeasurable losses to individual firms. The workers that are sent home currently are on 350 uh, euros a week. Uh, that's obviously substantially less than they were earning previously. Mm-hmm. So um, we have two crises. We have the continuing uh, COVID-19 health crisis, and we have a very, very fastly growing financial crisis that is going to have implications for everybody in the country, but particularly for the construction industry. Oh, yeah. And look, I, again, that is something that stretches far beyond this industry, but just as it's important that we look and we kind of break it down to a level whereby people who are not feeling very empowered at the moment, where they know what they ought to be doing at this stage, because you mentioned there about, you know, ways that they can mitigate losses. But, you know, in this climate of uncertainty at the moment, what we know for now is that the lockdown will continue um, until the 12th, uh, next Sunday, uh, the 12th of April. But obviously, who knows what after what's going to happen after that. So are there things that um, you're advising your members through the CIF where you're advising members to do to mitigate losses? Well, all of our uh, directors and teams are still working from home. Uh, we have a Zoom call every uh, morning at 10 o'clock and we send out an all-members um, uh, bulletin every day advising them up to date. And clearly contractual issues is a big issue and we give them the best advice possible depending on whether it be public or private um, as to what to seek clarity, clarity on the different contractual issues. And that's a very technical side and our uh, contractual uh, experts within you know, have been very busy on that. Then there's all the industrial relations side and how to deal with those and so on, how to qualify for the different schemes and so on. Um, and there's basically a lot of individual issues. Uh, but I suppose what we are doing now, our Health and Safety Committee uh, has been expanded very, very substantially to nearly 40 people. And they are coming up with a standardised approach uh, to the restarting of construction projects in Ireland. And that's not to say that it's going to start next week or the 12th or whenever. Of course. But, uh,
provide a lot of challenges to the industry, but uh, it is even going to include uh, an off-site induction that everybody who is going back to work, uh, and this is be at the early stage when there may be some restricted working on some of those bigger sites, mm-hmm. everybody has to do an, on, uh, 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 an online induction course to, to make them fully read into what the new arrangements are um, and the whole area of... Um, uh, you know, social distancing, the whole area of uh, security, biometric, uh, all of the, those issues. I think all sites would have to have C19 champions or marshals uh, to supervise uh, that all of the procedures and protocols that are being uh, put in place are being adhered to uh, and so on. So uh, it's a very, very substantial um, uh, protocol. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, we, we present it to government, we present it to the different health and safety, present it to the workers, the unions, present it to the clients and so on, and present it to our own members. That people will be getting their heads in the right place for whenever construction does uh, re- return to work. Yeah, and, you know, and that's exactly what's needed at the moment. You know, there needs to be some clarity when there's so much confusion out there. But um, one thing that you said that I, I um, you said previously, which I thought was very stark, is that your members will not be returning to the same workplace. They won't be returning to, t- to the type of workplace they've been familiar with before. No, I mean, sites by virtue of their existence, the positives are they're practically all outdoor. And generally, uh, there's lots of space. Uh, but lots of uh, elements of that, maybe fit house, uh, maybe fitting windows or doors and so on, does requires people to work certainly closer than the two metres that is the restriction at the moment. So it's coming up with protocols that we get around that. Now, in some cases, that may mean that if somebody has to do that for a short period, they may have to uh, wear very, very extensive uh, PPE gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but otherwise, it may have to be that that particular project may have to be mechanised. But it is going to meet the, mean that there will be a lot less people on site. Sites certainly won't be opening to their full extent. Uh, and that uh, just the protocols uh, uh, and the cleaning regime and the whole weight management and probably shorter working hours. I know there was a suggestion coming from Australia that uh, they were going to open sites uh, 24-7. And that would mean that the site could stay open but might only have maybe a fraction of the people on at any time that would work Saturday, Sundays and through uh, through the day, the, 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 the evenings, the long evenings now, in order to mean that uh, the full workforce could get better opportunity of working without having the full workforce on site at one time. And do you think that's something that the unions in Ireland would would go for? Well, it's something that we're talking them to, but clearly until the final uh, draft is done and uh, the comprehensive nature of that is established, uh, we don't want to really engage them. But, you know, I think certainly the, the sites that are working at the moment, and there are substantial sites working at the moment, uh, workers there are happy to come in because they know that they're essential services. Uh, they are happy because their employers uh, have put very, very strict um, uh, measures in place uh, so as they're safe. Uh, but that has to be spread out on a, on a wider basis now. Um, and I think certainly the, the distancing is certainly going to be a factor for quite a while. OK, and we know like we know that when restrictions are lifted, they won't be re- uh, restricted en masse. You know, it'll be a gradual lifting of restrictions. And, um, you know, is, is the construction industry coming at this with a bit of an advantage, given that they've such a strong emphasis on um, health and safety and the fact that every site has 
you know, unlike other typical or other traditional businesses, you know, every building site has somebody who's responsible and trained in health and safety and who is accountable on site. Does that give some form of advantage coming back into well, this? Well, I think it gives a minor advantage, um, um, Carol. Uh, but clearly that, you know, is going to have to be, uh, you know, I know from previous uh, some of the sites that introduced really tough um uh, not tough, but uh, uh, comprehensive uh, protocols. The issue was people didn't just seem to sort of respect them. Um, and I think that's changed a lot now with the fact that COVID has become so much more uh, serious. Um, and clearly there will be workers who will want to stay home, uh, you know, depending on their family situation, depending on maybe age people in the house and so on. But, you know, I feel that when we see the, 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 the frontline health people, the civil servants that are working around the clock, uh, the food service, the, um, uh, the the people working in the Tesco's and the supermarkets, there's no reason that construction workers should feel that they're any more uh, um, precious than anybody else. Uh, we do need uh, essential services to continue. We do need to get the economy back going, certainly not at the risk of any further spread of the disease. So I think it's getting people's heads into that right place because uh, we can only afford uh, you know, to have the whole economy closed down for a certain period. It is going to start up again. And I did hear the finance minister, uh, Pascal Dunne, saying that corporation tax, uh, you know, is going to be a very, very big part of the recovery. And uh, those big clients that are working in the uh, in the, the whole global uh, supply chain. Uh, and, you know, we have some pharma companies here who are right at the cutting edge. And some of those sites are, are open. Clean rooms are being built. And whether it be uh, drugs uh, to counter disease or vaccines, it's essential because you can imagine the scale of production that's going to be necessary to cover this global demand if somebody comes forward with a drug uh, that is that is going to deal with COVID. Okay, and of course, Ireland has such a, um, a strong legacy of pharma and it's such an important part of, our, of the national economy. So actually, that almost brings us full circle to capacity, you know, um, as and when the industry needs to to get going again. You know, will the capacity be there to do that? Well, obviously, we were being stretched a bit and now all of a sudden, practically 90 percent of the, 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 the industry is stood down. So it is going to take a while to get that up. But just on terms of the big players, um our, our our bigger companies uh, in particular that have been used to dealing with the uh, with clean rooms with the very uh, 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 complicated IT uh, and data center stuff they have a fantastic resource as well and it has been offered you know uh, to the HSE um, in terms of uh, you know rigging up new hospitals and so on uh, the, produ- the, the the whole production of of um, uh, oxygen and the whole availability of oxygen is a big, big factor. And I know a lot of our companies are offering their services there and their expertise and their supply chains uh, because all of the products that are in demand are in demand globally. Yeah. So, you know, I would hope that, and I do know, uh, I, I've seen the, the efforts uh, that some CIF members have made in terms of offering their services and their expertise, and it is substantial. And I know the HSC is under massive pressure. So hopefully, you know, that collaboration and working together uh, will, will, will give us a good result. Yeah, okay. And look, that's what we want to see. You know, it is the epitome of we're all in this together. You know, everybody's doing their bit. And I've seen um, a number of your members have come forward and actually donated their um, their PPE equipment um, to to frontline workers, which is amazing. 
you know, so right, yeah. so we've seen a huge effort coming from the construction industry. And uh, I suppose one of the things that I'd love to to get more clarity on today for your members, I mean, it's great that you're briefing members daily on on what they ought to be doing, how they ought to be using this time. And I appreciate that's very difficult given um, the absolute uncertainty that we're in at this moment. But in terms of the um, restarting, restarting construction and restarting sites pack that your team are working on, you know, what, well, I suppose, do you, do you know when that can be expected? Well, again, we hope to have the final draft this evening. Uh, we have to review it then, uh, but it'll be out. It'll be out to members, and it'll be presented to the likes of the IDA, to our clients, uh, to government departments. Uh, hopefully by Wednesday. Uh, but in particular, members are going to have to look down through it and look at the the thirty two different points on it, and and start preparing and say, well, look at uh, when I go back, this is the way it's going to have to be done. And clearly, it's going to be investment, and we're going to have to get support for that. Uh, and there's going to be cost implications as well. And uh, a group, as soon as the final draft is, a group of commercial managers have agreed to sit, uh, as we're doing, uh, you know, just, just like our, in, our conversation now. All of our meetings are taking place uh, at distance and they're being done online with Zoom and with other facilities. A commercial manager is going to examine that and, and try and work out the cost implications because clearly... Uh, clients are going to have to factor that in as well. That if the contractors and subcontractors, uh, clearly there's going to be substantial lack of productivity working under the new regime. There's going to be a whole lot of investments to be made as well. And that is going to have an impact on the overall cost. And uh, we're going to try and work that out. And then there will be discussions with uh, clients, be the big be the big multinationals or be the state with regard to how that's going to work out. Okay, so um, I suppose at this stage, your members need to, well, and the industry at large need to sit and wait for that. And um, in terms of the supports that be that be made available, are are your members finding those satisfactory? Well, I think in terms of the supports for the employees, yes, they are. And uh, I think the, the the speed with which the government have moved there, and the department of and the revenue department in particular, and the department of uh, of uh, social welfare, you know, that's good. Uh, and people are getting their payments. Uh, there will be a day of reckoning, of course, as well, that anyone that doesn't qualify and has qualified, you know, and people are very, companies are very conscious of that. Um, but basically, you know, this is going to test the cash reserves of companies because uh, trying to keep an operation afloat over a, 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 a time period that we don't know how long it's going to be and then being in a position to sort of kickstart it again at a much uh, higher cost level is certainly going to challenge companies. And I know the Irish government are looking at what's happening internationally and uh, hopefully they won't be found wanting uh, because uh, we are going to need an economic stimulus and certainly construction and investment in, in, in uh, infrastructure is one of the, the best returning economic stimuli that you can do. Yeah, yeah. Look, Tom, thank you so much. We'll leave it there. Um, thank you particularly for giving some much needed clarity and we look forward to the publication of your restart and construction and going through all of those points. I think it's exactly what members need to do to, to feel empowered and to be able to take action during this time so that they're actually working on their business and being prepared for, um, I suppose, being prepared as soon as it's safe to return. So thank you so much. That was Tom Parlin, Director General of the Construction Industry Federation. We need to take another quick break and we'll be back shortly. Stay tuned. 
Everything's fine on 93.9 Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon, recording from home as the radio station is operating remotely in full compliance with government guidelines at the moment. I'm delighted to be joined on, on the air now by Shane Dempsey from the Construction Industry Federation and Arthur O'Brien of C&W O'Brien. Uh, gentlemen, you're both very welcome. Thanks for having us, Carl. Thanks, Carol. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. So now we're going to get we're going to get stuck straight into it because um, really the, this has been such an uncertain few weeks. And um, while the construction sites now have been shut down, which is a huge change since we aired last week, um, it was something that was seen as almost inevitable at that stage. Um, and there's been a lot of commentary in the media, particularly this morning in the Irish Times. What I want to move on to with with um, you both, if that's all right, is let's try to look towards the future of construction and what that's likely to look at like when we get back to action. Um, so, Arthur, I might just start with you um, just in, in terms of the future of construction and getting back onto site, you know, when activity resumes, what are we likely to be looking at? Well, I, I think, Carl, there's, there's certainly going to be a, a catch up period when when we all try and, you know, restart ourselves. The, the communication chains will have changed, will have been down for some time. The uh, delivery of materials to site will have been down for some time. And, and just from people working on site to try and re-engage with the work that they left behind two weeks ago, uh, there's going to be a natural lag in, 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 in just bringing that back up to speed. Um, I, and I think that's just the, 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 the kind of infrastructure and, and the, you know, the working together and the communication side of it. I think also we're, we're, we're unlikely to see a full mobilization of everybody and every subcontractor back to site. Um, I, I know that even on some of the essential sites at the moment, they're, they're working through where they're allowing one subcontractor in at a time onto the site. Electrician goes in, does his bit, does his bit. A plumber, they go in and do their bit. Um, and so e- even that kind of way of working, which I think may happen, I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't, but I think it may, is, is going to dramatically slow down our ability to complete our work. And, uh, yeah. and that's going to have a significant effect on, on timeframes, delivery of buildings, um, both in the public and private sector. There, absolutely, um, absolutely. But do we know how those delays in construction programme are likely to impact um, the industry? So, Shane, from your perspective and members of the Construction Industry Federation, do you know yet what that's likely to look like in terms of... Um, well, contracts that aren't being adhered to because of because of the coronavirus and, and restrictions put in place. How are your members handling that? Yeah, uh, I think we're nearly we're nearly uh, looking too far ahead um, uh, at the at the situation because it's it's very much live at the moment uh, and estimates around you know productivity lag and the productivity impact of these new measures if and when we return to work. Uh, they're impossible to measure for the moment, but we're, we're operating off information that the uh, the health measures that uh, have been put in place are part of a kind of a, a 24 week cycle. 
um, which is kind of WHO best practice for health authorities. So we're currently starting week six now with the peak expected to happen in week seven and eight. And the really restrictive measures that have effectively shut down the industry started in week four and will run on until uh, three or four weeks after the peak of the pandemic in Ireland, whenever that may be. And that might only be the first peak in this pandemic, which is very worrying. But we're looking there at a date of around uh, the third week in May, when there may be, the health authorities might consider removing some of the restrictions that have set, uh, set shut the industry down. So, so first of all, that's an Archer's alluding to. It. That's a huge chunk of time where mm. there's no activity going on. The longer, a bit like unemployment, the longer uh, activity stalls for, the longer it will take to ramp up again. Um, so you can assume that um, it'll take another month or two to get big, uh, bigger sites open. Um, I'd be particularly concerned for the housing side, and Archer, I don't know whether you'd agree with me on this, uh, but, but uh, like their liquidity and their uh, finance, flow of finance dries up relatively quickly in rel- relation to other uh, parts of the industry. So I'd be very concerned about this year's housing output. I think everyone's accepting that it will be down on what was predicted, but also this kind of blush or this kind of, sorry, this kind of pause in activity can have a knock-on impact in 2021 as well. So not good news for resolving the housing crisis. Um, and I suppose uh, on the contracting side, then a lot of uh, contractors, particularly those uh, dealing with public sector work, will will now be um, struggling to come to terms with the new contractual reality. Um, they will have to implement, you know, new health and safety procedures that, as Arthur said, there will probably drop productivity in the initial phases by down by sixty percent. Like we're talking about uh, one man, one room. You know, we're talking about one team at a time on site. These kind of hugely logistically difficult uh, uh, work practices, uh, and they have knock-on impacts for timelines. And as you know, in the public sector, the contracts are very, uh, very strict and uh, delays and, and unforeseen costs generally tend to fall on the contractor and if these contractors have been operating as they have been even when times are relatively good before COVID these contractors are working at a 2% profit margin they really will be put to the pin at or collar unless there's flexibility on the public sector side. Okay and um, I, I know that no flexibility has yet to be shown from the public sector side and I know it was um, it's something that we discussed in an, an earlier interview with uh, your Director General Tom Parlin there when he spoke about how actually the private sector clients are probably taking the lead in this and they're coming to the table to discuss things kind of at a much earlier pace than we've seen um, than we've seen from the public sector so obviously we hope that changes. But Arthur, in terms of the contracts, um, the contracts that you're dealing with, you've had quite a busy few weeks. Um, you've had quite a busy few weeks uh, in your practice in CNW O'Brien Architects. Yeah, I mean, certainly we've we've had um, some of our uh, housing sites closed down, um, and I, I think they're driven by sales and, and expected and predicted sales, and they're they're I say easier to close down, and I think also easier and in inverted commas to to. To drive back up again, um, they're they're uh, you know uh, uh, not as difficult as some of the 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 bigger major projects. We've got multi-story 
uh, buildings on complicated sites where it's a little bit a little, little bit tougher to get that going or some of the more technical um, uh, IT sites and, and pharmaceutical sites. It takes it takes a bit of while to slow those down and drive them back up. Um, having said all that, uh, you know, I, I think we are we've we've got quite a lot of um, I think forward thinking clients and forward thinking funds and developers. Uh, everybody is everybody is trying to deal with the the issues that we have, which are right now, which is the two to three month closure that we may have. But, but we see a whole chunk of our clients looking past that. Um, you know, we, we've we've been lodging applications, and you might have seen a, a quite a large one in the Irish Times over the weekend in Barnhill going in for for SHD. We have uh, three more of those to go in this month. Um, so those clients are pushing on because they know that you know that the coronavirus is going to be well past by the time they get anywhere near a site. And, and and we've even had uh, clients last week. We were dealing with clients who were purchasing uh, three separate sites, uh, three separate clients looking at three separate sites, and and the work that we've been doing over the last uh, few weeks and months has has brought all of that to fruition. So, so we see generally um, looking forward, looking beyond the the immediate uh, issues that we're all facing, that you know we're going to come back out of this in in a business as as normal in terms of of driving work forward um how we deal with that work when we get to site is is you know is 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 um quagmire that we all have to have to deal with as as the whole playing field evolves and that's where we are yeah and but that's interesting and it's probably one of the more um i suppose it's maybe one of the more optimistic things that i've heard over the past number of weeks you know one of the other one of the other conversations that that was starting to happen then is um, unlike with the recovery that we might have seen after the crash, you know, where there was a very much a drip recovery here, there's going to be an element of people, organizations kind of, they need to, to hit the ground running, you know, they'll need to come out the gate charging. Um, and obviously we want businesses to be prepared and ready to do this. But is there, uh, is there an argument that, you know, when things are disrupted, it's actually a good time to make changes that ought to be made. So, for example, across the property and real estate side of things, you know, we're seeing IPAV call for changes in the conveyancing side of things because the market is, is disrupted now. The process is disrupted. So this is a good time to fix things that are broken and to move things along, maybe in line with um, international standards of innovation. So does that make this maybe a good opportunity to think about methods of um, off-site construction and, and modular building? Yeah, it's, Carl, I think it's a huge opportunity and it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity driven by, uh, by need, by uh, need and by, by reacting to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. You know, I, I think we, the, the whole digital age that's been there for so many years that we've all, oh, look, we can do this, we can do that, we can do the other. You know, and, and here we are in three separate locations um, carrying on as if we were all sitting in the same room. And that's happening every day. Um, you know, I'm having umpteen of those meetings every day. Uh, with clients, with consultants, uh, with my own, uh, with my own team, uh, uh, you know, work has gone on as normal, and we're, we're on Teams, we're on Zooms, we're on lots of these products um, that allow us to do that. And this this technology has been there for some time. Uh, we had we had a very long conversation with one of the uh, big modular guys, um, and just the integration of uh, technology into their design and and delivery of the, of their work on site which was a phenomenal meeting last Friday. Um, and, and, 
you know, I, I think if, if we look at modular in particular, there's a, there's a huge um, opportunity for the, for the modular guys to, to, um, to deliver buildings um, now in a quicker, safer, faster way where we're going to have uh, less people on site. And there's an opportunity for, to kind of embrace the, the, the restrictions of coronavirus that, you know, perhaps we're not going to be allowed to have so many people on site. And so that we, we take some of the, the, the modular technology um, and manufacture the, the, the buildings in controlled factory environments and, and deliver to a site. So we're reducing the number of people on site, reducing the number of truck movements, um, you know, saving materials. Uh, and obviously health and safety is, is a huge issue, which is uh, um, greatly, greatly um, benefited by modular construction as well. So I think a huge, huge, you know, with, with every, with every, um, with every change, with every difficulty, um, yeah, there's there's certainly opportunities, um, you know. So yeah, but with those with those opportunities, sorry, Shane, I want to bring you in here because I'm just wondering. You know, there's there is a gap between those who the organisations that have embraced technology and those who haven't. And uh, Arthur, I absolutely agree that there's an opportunity here, but I think that opportunity is more for the companies that have been preparing for this, and I'm not convinced that the majority have been. So Shane, what are you seeing across your members? Yeah, no, I think I think you're you're both right to an extent. I think the people who've been adopting technology, uh, be it BIM or you know uh, modern forms of production, construction uh, production, uh, they, they have a head start. But I've just been struck, uh, as Arthur is alluding to, there, I've been struck by uh, everyone, our own organisations uh, and and other companies there. The the responsiveness to change now that there is a crisis uh, and like the, the resilience of the industry as well. So um, on a number of Zoom calls every day where we're uh, collectively maybe 40, you know, leading companies are working together to develop new standard operating procedures. Uh, so th- there's a real responsiveness that just required a big crisis like this to really drive it forward. Um, uh, so that's one point. And I think uh, on the technology side, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to play a huge role in future. Even, even, even the BIM uh, will need to, you know, start to ad- address uh, lower productivity levels or longer timelines to f- to fin- finish bundles of work. BIM will probably have a role to play in in, in avoiding clashes. And by clashes, in this case, I mean uh, too many teams in one area of a of a building. It's a huge opportunity yeah. for the housing and uh, development side. Uh, more so the house building side to uh, to adopt uh, BIM planning uh, and and other technologies all the way down to simple things like uh, uh, contact tracing. So reading what happened in uh, South Korea and other far eastern countries like that and how they flattened their curves uh, so quickly and at such a level they were using RFID tagging. Um, if you went into a carriage in a train, you you touched your phone off uh, a contact point and it recorded where you were and in, a, and in the eventuality that you you were then diagnosed with COVID later on, they were able to trace back to all the other people in that carriage. So there'd be, I think that the, the, the technology will play a huge role in this going forward. And you're right, the companies that adapt to it will really, uh, uh, and they're doing so, will really benefit in the post-COVID world. My only concern, and Arthur might have a view on this, is, uh, you know, we, we ourselves, Ireland may recover and we hopefully will re- get one of these V-shaped recoveries. Um, however, our external markets, uh, the UK and the US, 
um, look like they're going to be really in a lot of difficulty in the coming years. Uh, they're going to have very bad pandemics. Um, no such thing as a good one, I suppose. But that will have an impact, I suppose, on international money flowing into the uh, flowing into the country here in terms of the de- development side. Um, and on the larger FDI side, uh, what we've noticed is that these companies are classified as essential services. Um, so they're they're keeping utilities going, they're keeping power going, they're keeping healthcare, global healthcare uh, uh, supply chains, and data uh, supply chains going. So they're essential services. So we would see a, a point in the not too distant future where those companies would classify themselves as essential, and that would open up an opportunity for our our industry to uh, to to support those services um, in the future. Yeah. Okay. Very good, Arthur. Do you want? I, to I think it's a point? genuine concern, and uh, I, I I do believe that that um, our 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 government or our um our, our our guys at the moment are are working their way through Corona, uh, and um, it's a credit to everybody involved from the health sector, the general public, the government. Everybody's working hard, and I think we are going to flatten this curve. Um, uh, but I I I think you're right. The the effect on uh, other countries, uh, namely Germany and, and, and the UK, uh, sorry, the US and the UK, were our biggest FDI guys, and 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 probably where a huge amount of our funding is coming for for our construction projects. Um, that that is a concern. Um, but I suppose that the positive twist to that is, you know, uh, if these if these guys can't make money in in wherever they, wherever else is 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 affected by whatever. Um, you know, and there's there's an opportunity for them to make money here in Ireland. I know that sounds very, very harsh and cruel, but I, I think you know the, the the money will flow to where they can make profits on it. Um, so I'd be less concerned. Yeah. Um, whilst I am concerned, I'd be probably less concerned because, um, you know, if there's if there's an opportunity for for everyone to to do well, they're going to chase that opportunity, even if it's not in their own country. And and I think we probably we probably bode well. As we come out of this um, quicker than than other countries. Uh, well, uh, actually, on that point, Arthur, I think um, certainly Professor Ronan Lyons, writing in the Sunday papers or there over the weekend, I think he would be inclined to agree with you. In fact, one of the points he made was that the PRS sector is likely to become more important and not less important throughout this crisis and in the process of recovering from it because. Because Ireland will need long-term capital um, coming into the country to rebuild our real estate real estate assets, but um, Shane, as you rightly pointed out, you know this conversation is probably very premature, and we still have we still have a number of weeks to go before we'll get any more clarity in that. But gentlemen, for there, um, we we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. That was Shane Dempsey from the Construction Industry Federation and Arthur O'Brien of CNW O'Brien Architects. Um, again, thank you both for taking the time out today in between Zoom meetings and, and um, all, all of the other meetings that are happening remotely. That's it from us today. Thank you for listening to Property Matters on Dublin South FM, the show where property matters. Get in touch with the show by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com or on Twitter at iPropertyRadio. Also, I'd like to thank Peter Rice on sound and show producer Katie Talon from Hear Me Roar Media, who had plenty of help from Sarah Kennedy of CNW O'Brien Architects and Hayley Rock from Construction Network Ireland. Uh, certainly in these times, it takes a village, folks. So we're back at the same time next week from myself, Carol Talon, and all the team here. Stay safe. <laughs>